The Foundation hosts podcasts to encourage a lively exchange of ideas related to our mission. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the Foundation's positions, strategies, or opinions. Welcome to the second episode of the Pioneering Ideas podcast from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. I'm your host, Christine Nieves, a program associate here at the Foundation. We have a great show today. We will meet BJ Fogg, a psychologist from Stanford University, who shares his secret to behavior change. And we'll take you inside the Foundation's first ever pitch day, where you'll hear from presenters who share their big ideas for transforming health and healthcare, as well as our entrepreneur in residence, Thomas Getz, and our guest judges, like angel investor Esther Dyson. Plus, you'll hear a touching personal essay from senior program officer and physician Mike Painter, who connects the dots between the need for better physician incentives and his father's passing. But first, I'd like to get things started with our mailbag segment, where we'll take a few minutes to answer your questions about our previous episode and our strategy for investing in innovation. Welcome to the Pioneering Ideas Mailbag. This week, Senior Program Officer Paul Terini is here to help answer your questions. Welcome, Paul. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. I just realized you've been with the Foundation for almost 20 years. That's right. Wow. Okay. Well then, your insight on this first question will be very, very valuable. The first question today has to do with something our colleague Brian Quinn said in episode one of this podcast. He was describing our decision-making process at Pioneer, and after describing the criteria we consider, whether a proposal shows potential for truly disruptive change, for example, instead of incremental improvements, he mentioned that intuition plays a role. So the question is, can you elaborate on what role you believe intuition plays in our grand-making decision-making? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, the first is, folks really need to be aware that there is no decision here that's made casually. I mean, even at the very first stage, when we're looking at a very early stage proposal, it gets three separate independent reviews. And you can go to the website and see the basic criteria that we use to review proposals. But our process also relies on the collective judgment and the instincts of our team. When we sit down to consider something, um, decades of experience come into play. Some of those decades are mine. <laughs> but that said, we recognize also that uh, when we all get together, um, there's the potential for groupthink. So um, the team has an explicit norm that if there's one officer who has a feeling about a proposal, is particularly interested in it, we're very comfortable with that officer taking the proposal out and doing some additional due diligence and some development on it and bringing that back to the team. So you not only get the intuition of the collective, but you also get the intuition of the individual who may see something in there that nobody else sees. Great. So it's, uh, it's really about making judgment calls. Judgments informed by experience, yes. Mm -hmm. So this next question, it's something we, we, I hear a lot. Does an idea have to be high tech to get Pioneer's attention? Nope. Let me be clear. Ideas do not have to be high tech to get our attention. Um, in fact, most of the tech proposals that we get, websites, platforms, apps, they're not 
terribly innovative. Mostly they're about moving a paper process online or something that would produce an incremental improvement at best. The proposals that we get the most excited about are those that are the most disruptive. And for us, disruption is not, again, moving something from paper to online. That's not a disruption. We like projects that shift paradigms, that redefine problems, that change how we think about health and care. So clearly, tech is not a prerequisite, but a good idea is. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Paul. That has been really, really helpful. My pleasure. All right, let's hear from BJ Fogg. BJ Fogg is an innovator and psychologist at Stanford University whose passion is creating systems to change human behavior. He calls this behavior design. According to Fogg's model, behavior change happens when motivation, ability, and a trigger come together at the same moment. As a foundation dedicated to transforming health and healthcare, we were curious to hear Fogg's thoughts on what it takes to inspire people to embrace healthier habits. As part of What's Next Health, our series of conversations with pioneering thinkers, BJ Fogg talked with Brian Quinn, the Assistant Vice President of Research and Evaluation at the Foundation. Here are some highlights from their conversation. If we want to build a culture of health in this country, what's the, the number one thing we can do to, to get there? What I'd love to see is to teach people how human behavior works. So uh, in our culture, for whatever reason, people have unrealistic notions about behavior change. New Year's resolutions and the idea that they can completely reinvent themselves overnight, those are some of the bad ways of thinking about behavior change. So if we can help people understand how behavior change really happens in the long term, then I believe that people can design some of their own solutions to have healthier behaviors. For example, if we explain there's only two ways to change your behavior long term. One is through baby steps and create habits, and the other is change your environment. So good behaviors are easier to do and bad behaviors are harder to do. Those are the only two ways. Helping people understand the reality of that, I think, helps people then make those changes and succeed. With so much happening with technology like self-tracking and social networks, I'm wondering how you see technology's role in behavior change. How critical is it? Well, for me, you may be surprised to hear that technology is not the solution. It's just a channel for implementing the psychology of behavior change. So I think there should be less emphasis on the whizziness of technology and more an understanding of how human behavior works. So when you understand the dynamics of behavior change, when you get the right psychological recipes, then technology helps you scale it, makes those behaviors easier, helps trigger the behaviors at the right moment. What does the future of behavior change look like? If we're having this conversation in 10 or 20 years, where's the field headed? I think one of the things that we'll see in the future, we're not there yet, is a way to help people pick which behaviors they actually want to change to be healthier. And after they select their items, help them to achieve them in a way that they feel successful all along the way. So for example, if somebody doesn't want to exercise, that's okay. They may choose something in nutrition or stress reduction. And as they do, uh, say, eat healthier food or reduce stress or sleep more down the road, they may want to exercise. So it's understanding that the, the different sequences or the pathways to health aren't the same for everybody and that the winning solution in the future will help people identify things they already want to do and help them feel successful in achieving that. 
For more of Brian and BJ's conversation, visit the What's Next Health website at rwjf.org slash WNH. Again, What's Next Health is a series of conversations with leading thinkers who inspire us to think big about the future of health and healthcare. We believe that as investors in innovation, it's so important to continually build our network of big thinkers and innovators from a range of fields, which brings us to Pioneer Pitch Day. Recently, the foundation decided to try a new approach to idea sourcing. We convened our first ever Pitch Day. Here's how it worked. We put out a call for ideas online challenging applicants to articulate their vision for transforming health and healthcare. We accepted submissions for three weeks. We then chose eight finalists from a pool of over 500 applicants and invited them to pitch their ideas live and in person to our program staff as well as a panel of guest judges. The day began with a welcome from Thomas Getz, the Foundation's Entrepreneur-in-Residence and the Pitch Day MC. I'm thrilled that the foundation has found a a way to get us all together and to get us thinking about what tools and approaches um, can we start developing and what innovations are available that can make uh, that culture of health come alive and come to to fruition even faster. Next, Um, Pioneer's interim team director, Lori Malikar, shared the team's vision for the day. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is committed to having a meeting with at least one of these teams and submitting and requesting a full proposal from one of the teams. But we also hope that many of you in the audience who really, as funders, as connectors, as people who are are movers and shakers in this world, um, we're really looking to you to to be thinking as these these pitchers are presenting about what you can do to elevate, to accelerate, and to really help them achieve their visions. Then we were off to the races, with finalists taking the stage to pitch their ideas to a rotating panel of judges. Here, Rosh Ratwani, Sarah Henriksen Parker, and Alan Fong from MedStar Health articulate their vision for creating what they call a social epidemic of safety. Recent reports have suggested 210,000 patients die annually from preventable medical error. Think about that for a second. It's equivalent to a major airliner crashing every single day for a year with zero survivors. For the past decade, we've worked hard to address this problem with training and seminars, taking a traditional top-down approach. The number of patient deaths has not changed. The approach has not worked. The solution, they argued, was to identify those in healthcare settings who consistently follow safety procedures and then to identify who among them were the most influential with their peers and get these influencers to spread safety like a virus. Recently, in one of our, one of our 10 hospitals, uh, a surgical team was 16 hours into a complex transplant operation in which upwards of 70 units of blood had to be transfused and over 500 sponges had to be counted multiple times. During this operation, the two nurses who have to count the sponges as they go in and they come out were doing one of their final counts and they found that they were one sponge off. So they repeated their count and again found the same discrepancy a second time. The team was exhausted and there was pressure on these two nurses to move on because in surgeries of this level of complexity, miscounts are common. But these two nurses were really concerned that the sponge was actually left inside the patient's abdominal cavity. They insisted that before the surgery proceed, the sponge be found. 
They even went so far as to ask for a second independent surgeon to come in and look and see if they could find the sponge. The surgeon came in and found the sponge buried deep within the wound. These nurses exerted extraordinary influence. And it's not just nurses. You know these people, these doctors or, or the custodians or the administrative assistants. These people aren't out there evangelizing. They're doing it. They're not out there inviting people to come to their seminar on safety. They're doing it. They're not posting signs on walls. They're actually doing it. What we need to do is make a tectonic shift in healthcare and in how we look at and measure patient safety. We need to take these people who are already influential within their social networks and use them to start to improve healthcare. Help us find the doers. With their pitch complete, the MedStar Health team fielded questions from the judges. Angel investor Esther Dyson asked for more information on how they would choose their influencers. Are you sure the pushy nurses are also the influential ones? Because clearly people like that are great, but clearly also their example is not being followed. And so how do you make the distinction between the ones who've got the right behavior and the ones who are actually influential? And then how do you get the influential ones to adopt the right behavior? I'm not sure I understand the magic yet. That's a great question, and certainly something that we've talked about quite frequently, because there could be really negative influencers, and, and you really want to account for who are these positive people who are moving a patient safety message forward. One of the ways that we're trying to get at that is by using a multi-pronged approach. So not just using sociometrics, but also using surveys and other kinds of report tools so that we learn who the influencers are and who the positive influencers are. Another guest judge, NPR's Shankar Vedanta, offered a question and an observation. Do you have any empirical evidence that this system that, you know, finding the influencers actually changes and changes in the direction that you want? Because if you solve that problem, I mean, it's not just patient safety. Yeah. <laughs> Hollywood and presidential elections, they're going to be a lot of people who are interested in your findings. <laughs> I think you've, you've identified the hardest challenge, one of the hardest challenges with this idea. And so while we don't have the perfect solution, it's a research idea that we're trying to execute, what we do know is that we would have process and have process measures in place that would give us an indicator as to whether we're headed in the right direction. So the motto of our center, fail early, fail fast, fail often, and iterate on that as as quickly as we possibly can. So I think it's the MedStar team went on to be one of the judges' three favorite ideas, by the way. But I'm getting ahead of myself. After all of the finalists have presented, Thomas brought the day to a close. The judges are going to um, uh, compare notes, and we will have uh, kind of our three um, top pitches. The, the top three will emerge uh, with a little consensus, uh, and so we'll, we'll announce those as we, um, as we meet and mingle and ask more questions. So thank you all for coming. Later at the reception, Thomas announced the winners. The three winners were the MedStar Health Team and their idea for creating a social epidemic of safety. Fred Trotter of Not Only Dev, who wants to mine medical students' browsing histories to break down barriers in medical knowledge. And Laura Esserman of the Athena Breast Health Network. With her partners at the National Committee for Quality Assurance and Salesforce, Laura wants to implement a risk-based cancer screening using an adaptive learning engine. You can learn more about the finalists and their ideas at rwjf.org pitchday. 
Huge thanks to everyone who helped make Pitch Day a success, including our terrific partners at AppNexus, who provided space for the event. And if you're kicking yourself that you didn't know about Pitch Day, don't worry. The Foundation's Pioneer Portfolio has an ongoing open submission process, so it's never too late to share your vision with us for transforming health and healthcare. Learn more at rwjf.org slash pioneer. We're going to close things out today on a more personal note. My colleague Mike Painter, a senior program officer here at the Foundation, as well as a physician, lost his father about a decade ago, and his encounter with the healthcare system at that time left a big mark. The experience continues to influence his approach as a philanthropist, and in this essay, he shares how it's shaped his thinking about what it takes to motivate human beings to change. I'll let Mike take it from here. My wife Mary and I recently got a series of early morning calls alerting us to the declining health of Mary's mom who was in her 90s. She died later that week. We were stricken and so sad, but took comfort that she died with dignity and good care on her own terms and at her home in San Francisco. Ten years ago, we received a very different early morning call about my father. An otherwise healthy and vigorous 72-year-old, Dad had fallen at home. Presuming he'd had a stroke, paramedics took him to a hospital with a neurosurgery specialty unit rather than to the University Trauma Center. That decision proved fatal. A physician in Seattle at the time, I arrived the next day to find Dad in the intensive care unit on a ventilator. Dad's head CT revealed a massive intracranial hemorrhage, Dad also had a large, obvious contusion on his forehead. The following day, the physicians asked to remove Dad from the ventilator. He died that night. We were profoundly devastated by his death and upset with the care he'd received. Our family wasn't interested in blame or lawsuits. We did, however, want answers. Why hadn't Dad been treated for a traumatic injury from a fall? Shouldn't he have had timely surgery to relieve pressure from bleeding? What went wrong? I've spent the last decade searching for answers for myself and countless others to questions about how to improve health care. I've had the honor of working with many people pushing health care toward high value at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and elsewhere. We've worked hard to find solutions. We all get it. The health care problem is a big, complex one without silver bullet answers. Still, we've made incredible progress with efforts like the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's Aligning Forces for Quality initiative in which community alliances work to improve the value of their health care. We're searching for ways to help us all make smarter health care decisions. We're helping health care professionals improve and patients and families be more proactive. We're exploring the price and cost of care and ways to automate health care information with technology. And importantly, we're working to align the incentives that healthcare professionals need to support and deliver great care. We strongly believe that unless we reward great results, we won't get them. That means payment reform, with a focus on financial incentives for those who hunt for waste, resolve safety problems, sustain improvement, and most of all, innovate to save more lives. But do financial incentives to promote and reward behavior work? In his book, Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, Daniel Pink emphatically says that all too often they don't. 
research shows that financial incentives do work for narrow, routine, mechanistic tasks. But the more complex the task, the more financial incentives target at it fail. In fact, they may even degrade desirable behavior by dulling creativity and inhibiting motivation. Larger rewards can even lead to worse performance. That's a problem when we're trying to solve big complex problems like fixing healthcare. But there is hope, and there are motivators more effective than dollars. Pink suggests we focus instead on what really matters to the people we're trying to motivate, like autonomy, the ability to direct one's own life, mastery, the desire to get better at something that matters, and purpose, the chance to serve something larger than ourselves. These three motivators allow human beings to look broadly, get creative, innovate, and be energized. That's the basis of a critique on healthcare payment reform efforts in a new Robert Wood Johnson Foundation report. And that brings me back to my dad. In 2005, several years after he died, several of us at the foundation were traveling the country trying to understand what was happening in healthcare markets. We were gathering information to develop the Aligning Forces Initiative, and that work led me to my hometown. During interviews, one leader volunteered several major problems they were experiencing, including access to some emergency specialty services. High on the list of those services was access to neurosurgery specialty care for emergent but unprofitable craniotomies. That's that surgery my dad desperately, urgently needed, the one he didn't get. In 2004, a couple of national surveys by the American College of Emergency Physicians and the American Association of Neurological Surgeons and the Congress of Neurological Surgeons highlighted a growing reluctance by specialty physicians to provide emergency on-call coverage. Half of neurosurgeons who served on call had limited their call in some way. One-third of them refused to offer craniotomies. To fix this specialty on-call problem, some like the American Association of Neurological Surgeons advocated for a payment change, a bonus or stipend to surgeons for on-call coverage. But a subsequent 2006 AANS-CNS survey showed that while stipends might be attractive, they weren't the solution. No doubt part of the reason was it took surgeons away from non-emergent profitable care. That reason, though, does not sync with the experience we've all had with individual, compassionate physicians we know. Perhaps instead, by putting these surgeons in extremely difficult situations and trying to force or entice them to do these procedures, we are degrading their sense of control, their autonomy and mastery, and ultimately, their incredible sense of purpose. I'm going to make a bold assertion. Until we get these human motivators right in healthcare, we can try all sorts of complicated, elegant payment models and formulas and still ultimately not get to the goal of sustainable high value. It will always be just over the horizon. Let's absolutely be smart about incentives in healthcare, but let's also get away from talking about simple carrots and sticks. Instead, let's find the right mix of motivators to promote the creativity we need to get the best care every single time for people who are relying on us, like my dad. I believe we can do it, I must believe, because for me, as you can see, it's personal. Mike is an incredible physician, a philanthropist, and a storyteller. To learn more about the Foundation's report on healthcare payment reform efforts, 
visit rwjf.org slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And please, if you have any questions about the people and projects we've talked about today or about the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's approach to funding ideas that have the potential to transform health and healthcare, don't hesitate to get in touch. There's no shortage of ways to do so. You can email us at pioneerportfolio at rwjf.org or follow us on Twitter at pioneerrwjf. And of course, you can visit us at rwjf.org slash pioneer, where you can read about our funding strategy and investments, as well as read and comment on our pioneering ideas blog. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Christine Nieves signing off. See you online.